lady on uh, on the radar that I was talking to said, look, I can't give you a code right now, but just keep coming. So there I am plundering into um, Sydney Control Zone on a raw radar paint only. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 52 and part two of our interview with Ken Vogt. If you just found the show, then a big welcome, and I hope you get a lot out of it. You might want to jump back to the previous episode, to number 51, to catch the first part of Ken's flying history in the Australian Navy. If you are a returning listener, then again, thanks very much for spending the time to come and hang out as we learn a bit more about flying these crazy machines we call helicopters. It's officially summer now in Australia, and we are feeling it, you know, hot, humid days. And this week in Brisbane, we've been getting those classic summer afternoon storms rolling through. I love it as a spectator sport, being able to, you know, watch those build-ups and then the roll clouds and then the drop in temperature as they uh, power through. The wind forecast for a week out looks like a, a sawtooth. You know, it starts low in the morning, then peaks around 7 p.m. at night after the storms, and then just repeats you know, for about four or five days at a time. And at work, the, the goal is to get from the, the air conditioning into the helicopter and get the, the big fan going with minimal delay to avoid as much of the heat as you can. It's Sunday today, so we did the all-day siesta thing inside under the fans and then escaped out into the, uh, the cool this afternoon for a, a swim in the pool uh, for a cool down. And I've got a a photo here from Andrew Doherty he shared from Cloncurry of an R22 with a dash temperature gauge showing 50 degrees centigrade. So I feel for those guys out there. It's this time of year, though, when on Facebook my feed starts filling up with you know, photos of helicopters parked in snow with icicles hanging off them in the northern hemisphere. I'd love the, the novelty of going out and seeing ice on the helicopter but I guess that wears off pretty quick too. If you've got photos of an egg cooking on your rotor blades or icicles hanging off, then yeah, definitely share them on the show Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash rotary wing show. Lister Mike Duffy has posted several shots of a Bell 412 that he flew in the Bahamas on a law enforcement gig that you can check out while you're there. Thanks, Mike. If you're looking for a, another helicopter podcast to load up on episodes, then I'd love to be able to point you to, over to a fairly new one called the Cancel Sarwatch Podcast. Sam, Luke and Parky live about two and a half hours west of me, and I found their podcast in a Huey Facebook group. It's not strictly a helicopter show, but most of the stories and examples they draw on are helicopter-related because that is Sam and Parky's own background. When I was in the Army and flying Hueys, Parky had produced a number of cheat sheets or study guide called Parky's Huey Tidbits, that were passed around as study notes. So it's great to be able to send some love back their way and you can find them over at cancelsarwatch.com or on Facebook at the, the Cancel Sarwatch podcast. 
So check them out and drop them a line and a message letting them know how you found out about them. Last episode, our guest Ken Vogt spoke about his experiences working with the SAS in Vietnam and working up a squadron of Wessex helicopters for an over-water nighttime counter-terrorism contingency and then moving on into military training. For our main interview today, we pick up where we left off and cover Ken's post-military career and where that took him. I start off asking him about how he found the transition out of the military. I was lucky. Um, an ex-Royal Navy pilot who I'd known quite well in the uh, the early 70s, I come across him in Jindabyne actually about a year before I was getting out and uh, he indicated there'd be a job at uh, Channel 9 flying a media helicopter if I was interested uh, when I got out. Now, this at the time, uh, the media was the top of the tree as far as civilian helicopter flying was concerned. The only other option for... Uh, was SO type work, um, so it's flying uh, yeah to the oil rigs, carrying yeah. uh, oil workers. There wasn't a lot of that around Australia. Probably only on well as it is now off the northwest and down in Sail, but um, it was considered to be the top of the tree to score a uh, to score a media uh, helicopter job. So I was fortunate there. Uh, so I joined that uh, that company and uh, flew with Channel 9 for a couple of years. In the meantime, I also, because uh, in those days, you flew more or less as a contract pilot. Well, not more or less. You flew as a contract pilot. So you'd be contracted. I was contracted um, with Channel 9 to do Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I could fly with anyone else I, I, I liked. This is what the boss told me I could do. Providing I had my one day off a week, you had to have one day off. So you had to fly for six days and have one day off. Uh, so as I did, but at that time I started uh, flying for the ABC and Channel 7. So sorry, you were Sydney-based Sydney then, or was that Melbourne? Oh, Sydney-based, yeah. Sydney. No, Sydney-based, yeah, Sydney-based. Um, uh, at that time, my uh, care flight had just started in mid-'86, and... Uh, the bloke I was working for said, look, uh, go contact the chief pilot of Careflight. They're looking for a third pilot. So and was Care, so Careflight the first EMS operation in Australia? Was there anything before that? Uh, yeah, strictly speaking, yes, it probably was. Um, the the crew, uh, including doctors and uh, pilots, crewmen, and some administration people, were all working for Westpac, which was at that stage more or less uh, an up and down the beach uh, on uh, sunny Sunday afternoon type thing, but they did a good job and they were the first to do this sort of stuff, really. However, the people that decided to start care flights saw there was more to it and that uh, employing doctors and doing um, retrieval work to motor accidents and accidents in the bush and into hospital work was probably the way to go and they end up being right because that's what it is right now. Yeah, the the modern companies in 2016 basically grew out of what Careflight was. Careflight was a pretty progressive company. They were the first, as I said, to really incorporate doctors into the crew. And at the early stage, we flew squirrels and we didn't have room for a, a paramedic. We only had the pilot, the crewman, who do- doubled up as a sort of doctor's helper and the doctor, and then you slid the patient in. So you can imagine a squirrel that uh, there wasn't much room left. 
So um, they then decided that uh, they needed to move to twin-engine machines, so they got a Dauphine. At that time, we accepted paramedics from the New South Wales Ambulance Service, so we were flying with a pilot, a crewman, paramedic and a doctor, uh, and it was considered to be a team. They weren't passions in the back. If you were going to land in a confined area, they had an active role in clearing the tail. And a lot of the doctors and paramedics particularly became very good at being your eyes in the back of the helicopter. Then they went to 24-hour operations with that. I think they were probably primarily the first operation to go there. We started doing instrument range for the pilots. They were once again from this type of operation. We were careful. It was probably the first ones to... Uh, get involved in the pilots having instant range, therefore all-weather capability, so 24 did you hours. So come back on board then as a, uh, the instructional side of things, or was it like in-house instruction, or was it...? Uh... Uh, I, because I was uh, held a, a civilian instructor rating in my experience, I was a sort of uh, standards uh, pilot of the company. Yep. Yeah, if there were check rides to be done amongst the pilots, I, I did them. I then uh, flew there for well, probably early 90s. I went away and did other... Th- oh, in that time, I was doing a bit of other sort of flying, but now that CareFlight had moved to being a, a full-time job, then uh, yeah, there was no time in the roster to go off and do other stuff, so I stayed there. I did leave in the early 90s, did some other things, and came back uh, in the late 90s to go to the ADF helicopter school as it had become being run essentially by the Army for uh, Army and Navy pilot uh, helicopter conversions. The Air Force had opted out of helicopter flying, and they're still out of helicopter flying. And so I spent another year there as an instructor, back once again at Fairburn, familiar ground. The the colours of the tyres hadn't changed in whatever number of years it was in the, the confined areas and pinnacles. And then CareFlight opened up an operation uh, in Orange and I was asked if I want to be the senior pilot out there and I said yes. So I took on the job out there as senior pilot and once again probably I'd have to say the seven years I was there until CareFlight lost the contract in 07 was probably the most enjoyable civilian flying that I'd done because once again it was EMS. We uh, were a day and night VFR in a uh, koala, an Augusta koala which was a good little helicopter, although it wasn't autopilot. It had a stabilisation system in it, pitch roll and yaw, but it wasn't an autopilot. It couldn't couple it up to an ILS or anything like that. Uh, and we were not IFR. We, we didn't go into the clouds, although yeah, flying around the central west, uh, you, know, you did go into clouds, there's no doubt about it, and a quick 180 and get out of it was the way you had to do it, but there was no choice, really. You'd check the weather before you accept any mission that sort of after dark, and... Yeah, you just had to be careful, but you didn't certainly didn't deliberately say, "Well, I'll just fly for the next ten minutes on, on, on in the clouds and I'll pop out the other side." As soon as you went into the cloud, you do what most instrument rated pilots should do, and some of them don't, uh, and do a quick one eighty yep. and get out of the cloud. Um, but yeah, we did a lot of work on farms, a lot of road accident work. Um, there's and- quite a few in the in the CareFlight um, sort of annual reports, where uh, especially on the aviation crashes and things like that, where you're quite often mentioned as being as a you know the first person or the first team on the scene when you're basically out looking for the, the crash site. Yes, well, we were tasked by ambulance, the ambulance service. And they are based in Sydney, the, the what they call the medical retrieval unit. And at this stage. 
uh, surf lifesaving, Westpac had had come on board to be what we were, the same thing, you know, twin engine, IFR rated pilots, doctors, paramedics. So there were two operations in the city at this stage. Uh, because, uh, well, if we were in Orange, you wouldn't send a, even the Westmead Care Flight helicopter, except at night, would come out to the West. We'd do all the jobs out there. Yep. But, you know, I emphasise, we are day-night VFR, and that's the way we played it. And any time, probably three times in, in that seven years, three or four times that I actually bumped in a cloud at night, because our, our duty time was 0800 to 1800. Um, and you really, you know, that was when you were obliged to accept a job if conditions for the job were acceptable. Yep. Uh, occasionally, you'd go on a job late afternoon, and because of the complexity of what you're going to and the medical side of it would delay you so you'd have to come home after dark but that was accepted but that's the time when you could get yourself um, into trouble the uh, the chief pilot time was an excellent man and still is and um, he uh, he used to always say there's always another way they can do the job and it's a risk versus gain situation and he used to also have a say, saying that it's uh, you're better to be on the ground wishing you're in the air than on the in the air wishing you're on the ground. And we pretty much uh, we pretty much stuck to that. And I honestly can say that um, once airborne, I never missed a mission. Uh, there were certainly times due to the weather in Orange, which can be atrocious, uh, particularly in winter, that we didn't accept missions because the weather the the, the cloud was on the ground, Orange, because it's, uh, it's three thousand feet above yeah, sea level and it's got this thumping ground Mount Canobolus, which goes up to about five and a half thousand feet. So, and it has a significant effect on the weather out there. So, you had to be careful in wintertime, particularly that you didn't accept a job that you knew was going to end in tears. And did you have a level of separation? I know I'm pretty sure most EMS crews these days operations, as far as I understand it, you know, get the job in, but don't tell the flight crew um, what the, you know, what it actually no. is. Well, that that actually that was sort of the basic rule when I first joined uh, Care Flight. But uh, in the early days, we had a pilot, a crewman, and a doctor, and you went to a road accident. Then I can assure you, you knew the state of what the patient was like, and that sort of rule, particularly in Care Care Flight, where it was so structured: pilot is the captain, crewman is the is the co-pilot, non-flying co-pilot. Uh, the paramedic and the doctor are part of the team. They're not considered to be just passengers, uh, which I think the post-care flight, that's more of the attitude, I think, amongst the commercial operators. We uh, we worked as a team, and you couldn't help know the condition of the patient. I think it's so, no, more about before you launched, um, just to try and take away some... Yeah, you're, well, if you're going to a car accident, then you're going to a car accident, it could be anything. Yeah, sure. Um, you would know if you're going on into hospital that uh, someone had had a massive heart attack, for instance. So you knew this. But there was never, ever to be any pressure applied uh, overtly to the air crew to get the job done. But the air crew knew that they had a job to do and they better get all their skills out and start doing it. Now, there's a book, um, Ken Wishaw, I think he was one of the first doctors yeah, assigned. Yeah, so in there. Like, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> My name popped up in that. <laughs> yeah, I think your uh, picture of you on the on the cover, at least the, the machine, there's a helicopter on the cover and supposedly you're, you're flying it. But uh, yeah, there was two things I just picked out of that when I was skimming it. it was one, you know, you basically were pretty hands-on with the patients, I understand, or at least on at least one occasion where you were pumping blood and things like that. So was that... 
a pretty frequent yeah, in the place. early days yeah no that in the early days with the squirrel where there was only the pilot the crewman and the doctor it was a crewman actually uh, in those days was trained uh, closely trained and supervised by the doctor to draw up drugs to be injected and to act as a second pair of hands for the doctor now a lot of times two pair of hands wasn't enough uh, particularly if the patient is, you know, there were times when the heart stopped in the aircraft and there was a need for adrenaline and stuff like that. So, yes, there were times when you needed to hold something and I think it was a drip bottle, I'm not sure. I didn't actually get blood on my hands. But, but you know, there were times when the doctor said, here, grab, can you hold that, please? So you did it. And uh, it was a real team effort. And even, and when we got the paramedics, uh, the same applied, although the pilot then could sort of back off a bit because there were... There were the, the the crewman was still trained in medical issues, and the paramedic, of course, was trained in medical issues. The the big difference between a medic, uh, between a paramedic and a doctor, the doctor can basically do anything he likes to save a life. A paramedic has what they call protocols, where they sort of go through a series of protocols, sort of a checklist, if you like. Uh, and once they come to the end of that, then you know. They're a bit on their own, whereas a doctor can do... If you think of MASH, the movie MASH, and the doctor's in there, then that's a similarity, where the doctor does anything he likes to save the life. Yep. And I don't know if there's teething issues or not too, but just the other thing you touched on there, that at one stage there was a helipad ban at, uh, at Westmead in Sydney, one of the, the big hospitals, uh, where you, you had to land across the road and you couldn't land at the hospital. And uh, when Ken was writing the book, he was you know, basically lamenting that, that particular issue. Yeah, well, uh, once again, the once CareFlight moved to 24-hour operations, IFR operations, a lot of the hospitals, became unsuitable because they lacked a decent helicopter pad with lighting and stuff like that, and wind socks and, and clear of obstacles and whatever you like. When we first started going to Liverpool Hospital, you landed on one side of the railway line and the ambulance took the doctor and paramedic across there to the hospital. Another hospital um, springs to mind, but, but afterwards... The helicopter pads started to be included in the hospital construction. The new hospital at Orange, for instance, has a rooftop helipad. Uh, the old hospital in uh, in uh, Orange is buried right in the middle of town and it's probably got the smallest and tightest helicopter pa- pad I've ever flown to in a hospital. Now, because it was our normal base of operations, we didn't think too much about it. But, <laughs> however, some of the visiting pilots uh, who had... Uh, sort of joined a company in Sydney and then were told to fly to Orange Hospital looked a bit horrified because it, <laughs> it literally was right in the middle of town, a main road ran down one side of it. The hospital surrounded it. There was a huge oxygen tank very close to it, uh, which you had to make an approach over a couple of times. So, yeah, it was quite a small pad. And, yeah, hospitals uh, had to start to think about helicopter operations 24 hours a day and of course, pads are now incorporated in a new built hospital. Yeah, it's pretty much you almost wouldn't think about a you know a new you know major city hospital without a helipad. Without right? one, that's, that's no, it. no, it doesn't happen. No, that's interesting. Yeah, a recent helicopter conference we went to up at uh, the uh, Sunshine Coast, and they're talking about the I guess the three D protection that the cities are trying to build in now when they're doing their their planning approvals for high rises and things like that. Is they've now got to think about. Uh, things like that, you know, so you know, three D, you know, where the building's going to breach in terms of, of helipad approaches. That's like right. That. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. No, a friend, a good friend of mine who works for yeah, he'd be ex US Army, but uh, he's a mate of mine from way back, and a care flight pilot. Um, he had us. He was very good at it. He had a, uh, a private company that designed helicopter pads, uh, and uh, for hospitals, he had an input, a big input into the orange pad. Uh, he virtually designed and had built the uh, Toomba Blue Mountains helicopter pad. So, uh, and I've watched him as he does a 3D computer model of a helicopter pad, and and what can and can't be close to the approach paths, both vertically and horizontally. It's uh, it's a technical business. So, if you're going to build a new hospital somewhere, then um, you've you must factor in uh, the helicopter pad, and in doing that, you've got to look what's around it or what could possibly be around it. After Careflight, did you, is that where you finished up or did you move on to... No, um, after Careflight, after we lost the contract, there was a job in Sydney, Careflight had its main Careflight helicopter down there, but one of the doctors had decided that immediate intervention by a qualified doctor and paramedic could save lives, particularly with people with head injuries. And uh, he developed uh, this basically a paper which he presented to the company and went on to the to the um, health department and uh, they acquired a, an Augusta 109 which is a sort of big brother of uh, although it come before the Koala two engines IFR retractable undercarriage cruise speed of 140 knots or something like that and uh, this was one it's hard to decide between the orange job and the and the hurt job because I went after we lost well I started working on hurt while I was still out at orange but this was, uh, there was a set process. We had within the hangar complex uh, crew room, which in that had a uh, computer system where all the accidents being called into ambulance came up on our screen. And we monitored this. One of the crew would monitor it all day. And if we saw motor vehicle accident, head injury, anything like this, we would launch and uh, go to wherever it was. This made life interesting because it operated out of uh, Westmere Hospital where Keflight was, and if you turn uh, turn it towards Sydney, it wasn't long at 140 knots that you're in the zone, uh, Sydney control zone. So they had an arrangement with air traffickers that uh, they they knew when we got airborne, we needed a code, we needed it quickly, and we needed the clearance. And we got some phenomenal service from the air traffickers. One day I launched to the west, turned left and was heading over Rose Hill Racecourse and into the zone. And the lady on the, on the radar that I was talking to said, look, I can't give you a code right now, but just keep coming. So there I am plundering into um, Sydney Control Zone on a raw radar paint only. Yep. But shortly after, she came up and said, squawk, such and such, and away we did. And that was interesting. We landed just about anywhere we could. And, and it was all arranged through police and ambulance and health. There was no, it wasn't a cowboy outfit, but you just, yeah, you went somewhere and you landed as close as possible to the um, to the accident scene. Can you remember a couple of memorable landing spots? Uh, well, one of them, the first one landing over at uh, the eastern suburbs, it was like an amphitheatre uh, all around with seating, and it was probably, I don't know, 50, 60 feet from the sort of top to the bottom, and we landed there. It was just a, a weird feeling to be descending into this amphitheatre-like thing. Uh, we landed, I remember a road I travel quite frequently now, it's Ken Hills Road, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but it's a major artery out of Sydney to the north, 
and we landed there one morning and uh, just blocked the traffic for a couple of hours, which doesn't help the uh, the people. <laughs> but surprisingly, surprisingly, um, there was very little in all my time, very little angst from the civilian people who we were were uh, upsetting. Uh, I did have one fellow uh, we went to pick up. This is before hurt, but we went to pick up a child who's badly injured or sick or something in an inner city harborside suburb. And uh, I landed in quite a large football field. The doctor and the paramedic went off and the crewman went off and I'm sitting with the helicopter and this bloke come out of the out of the crowd sort of thing and wandered over and started to give me a real lecture on why I'm landing here and what right have I and who said and I'm going to ring the police and and I said, mate, there's a little kid over there. How would you like to be your grandchild that needs this help? Anyway, he mumbled something and disappeared. But in all my time, the people that we managed to uh, to disturb in their daily business with our helicopters, very few of them complained. Very few of them complained at all. In fact, I remember one poor fellow, he, he built, he just finished respraying a car under a gazebo type thing. And we landed quite a way away from it. But this gazebo fell onto his car and oh, no. damaged the new paintwork. Well, careful what was insured for these things. He was uh, an ex-South African Air Force photographer or something, and he said, look, he rang up and said, I don't want to complain, but you've just knocked my gazebo onto my car and ruined my new paint job. But, you know, I understand what you're doing. And, and immediately I said, don't worry, our, our insurance company will fix it right now. And it was done. Uh, we so, always uh, that, uh, uh, whenever a horse gets hurt, it's the uh, it's the next Melbourne Cup winner. They, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, this this bloke was yeah he was just he was almost sorry he had to ring, but we said no problem. Give us your details. I'm sure it's going to be around tomorrow. I mean, those sort of things happen. It's unfortunate, uh, but as I said, yeah, very few people did I come across that complained bitterly about a helicopter laying in their backyard. Most of people realised that it could be them or their kids or their mother or something. So, yeah, it was never a great problem. Ah, oh, excellent. Okay, so that's back in uh, in Sydney base then? Oh, sorry, yeah. No, that was, that was Hurt, and that was after we lost the contract in Orange. Yep. And Hurt was what was being done by Careflight, and I was doing that, and I had a full-time job doing that, but uh, uh, a job... Uh, came up and was pointed out to me by someone who said, this would be right up your alley, flying uh, as a civilian pilot for a civilian company embedded with the Army in uh, in Darwin. Uh, specifically, they needed instructors and were giving um, the, the aircraft we were going to fly was EC-135, which is built by the same manufacturer as the, as the uh, Tiger and has the same sort of uh, cockpit type of layout and glass cockpit and two engines and autopilot, stuff like this. So the Army uh, decided that um, I think there was a contractual issue in that uh, the company was a bit late with the Tiger or something and uh, there was a penalty to be paid. So the Army cut this out by getting two EC-135s, four instructors, four engineers, and we gave anyone in the Army who wanted uh, any flying in these sort of aircraft, and, and a lot of them were Kiowa pilots who were going to Tiger. Now, you can imagine the, the mind-blowing experience of a Kiowa pilot stepping into a glass cockpit, two-engine, full autopilot. Uh, well, no, sorry, it wasn't full autopilot. It was still uh, three-axis. But anyway, you can imagine the, the step up for these guys, and that's what we gave them. We gave them sort of pre-Tiger training before they went on to the Tiger. 
Yeah, and I, so I that knew, lasted. I never knew too much of the details, but I remember looking on from from further south and and being a little bit jealous that these guys got to fly in a yeah. <laughs> shiny new machine. Well, yeah, the army uh, twice in the, my period up there, we were detached down to um, down to uh, Oki, and we just gave uh, anyone down there who wanted to ride, basically. So yeah, it was just mainly to give these chiropods or anyone going to Tiger a bit of a pre-Tiger flying. But the Army said, anyone who wants to fly, get yourself up to one aviation regiment and you can have a fly around the EC-135. So it was quite good. Once again, a lot of hours. The interesting thing at Darwin, because there's always an interesting thing, there's always a trick. And uh, the weather in Darwin, as you're probably aware, the wet season is is tragic. And unfortunately, the EC-135 only just had the legs to go from Darwin to say, um, uh, what's the name of the Air Force Base down? Tyndall. Uh, Tyndall, yeah. And they just had the IFR legs to do that. So in the dry, no problem, not a cloud in the sky, but in the wet with bills up around the place, it, it was some intriguing, intriguing flying. One of the aircraft had a weather radar, which helped, and the other one didn't, which didn't help. But um, that was a good job. Um, I shared the roster with... Uh, um, a couple of Kiwi ex Kiwi Air Force Wing Commanders and uh, a bunch of dedicated engineers, and that's where I come across our mutual friend Craig Bowman, of course. Yeah, and uh, shout out to Craig to say thanks very much for hooking us up. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he he was a good bloke, Craig. Uh, I had a lot of time for him. He uh, he had a bit of sort of. Uh, difficult to follow his conversation at times, particularly after a couple of beers. He talked very quickly and changed subjects, but uh, I hung in there. We generally communicated quite well. A good bloke all round, uh, Bowie was. Excellent. And still is, I presume. (laughs) In fact, I talked him into getting into the EMS world. I said, uh, once the contract finished, it was only four, two years. I said, Bowie, well, you know, you've got a fair bit of flying under your belt. Do you want to fly offshore? Same route, same day, every day, or do you want to do something where the job's different every day? I said, if you do want to do that, then you know, get yourself into an EMS job. There won't be many hours, but the hours you do will be rewarding. So, uh, And he did, and he still seems to be uh, enjoying the job after about six years. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, there's a, you've done so much flying yourself, but then also on, on the training side of things. You know, for someone who's either working their way through training now, well, we can take a couple of bites of this. So, you know, someone who's doing the helicopter training now or someone who's been in a job for, for six years or so and in the middle of the road, you know, when you're sitting down with pilots and you're having a beer or when you're going up for check flights and things like that, what are, you know, what are, what are some of the things that you really try and hammer home that uh, really made a difference for you or that you know, wish you had known earlier on? Well, the thing that I harp on a lot, uh, and it comes from flying the uh, the the 119, the Koala in Orange, is that you must know your limits and the aircraft limits. Now, I could point out probably three or four at least fatal helicopter accidents in the EMS world that the aircraft didn't have the capability or the pilot didn't have the capability or both. And the old saying is it can always be done another way. And you touched on the subject. Was there any pressure? Well, there's only pressure if you apply it to yourself. If you stand back and say to the doctor, I'm sorry, you'll have to road ambulance this down to Sydney, which we did on a number of occasions, um, because crossing the Blue Mountains from Orange, wintertime or any time, thunder build up, stuff like that, it's, you know, you can't do it in a VFA helicopter. 
So any young pilot who's starting his training, first of all, if you're starting your training and you want to be a helicopter pilot, then you must treat your training like it is a job. No mucking around. If you need to know your checks, you need to know your limits, you just must know them or you won't progress as, uh, as well as you think you should, plus you'll be throwing your three or $400 an hour down the drain. That's the first thing. But once, you, once you're qualified, you must must know your limits and the aircraft limits, and you must not exceed them. Uh, I've seen too many people die in, uh, in the EMS world and elsewhere because clouds and helicopters not qualified, pilots not qualified, all come together, and I think the US Navy did some sort of uh, study on uh, a person who's not uh, qualified to fly in, uh, in the cloud on instruments, it's some phenomenal time, like 40 seconds before they've lost control. Yeah, so, I think you know, um, it's, it, Cass has done several, you know, flight safety sort of articles and stuff on it too, and they, they yeah. sort of talk down, you know, what the, the thing, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not long. Yeah, know your limits and know the aircraft limits is capabilities, your capabilities, and never, ever push them. The job can always be done some other way now. You may remember Gary Tysist, who um, who crashed in the middle of uh, a New Year's Rock. Um, I worked for Gary. I knew him when he was an Army pilot. Um, he unfortunately died in a helicopter accident, along with a couple of guys, and uh, you know the findings point to what I'm saying, really. And, um, you know... You can never, no matter how experienced you are, you've still got to know your limits and the aircraft's limits and capabilities. It seems to be the, the really hard thing, though, because, you know, it's a reoccurring thing and the, the type of people who generally, you know, get into flying is, one, you, you know, you love it, you're passionate, you you, know, you get skilled up and, and you kind of, you know, there is that, you know, I guess sometimes there's organisational pressure in a commercial sense, but... You know, quite often you do put pressure on yourself to do the do the job and and be the person who who pulls it off and things like that. So, yeah, it's sort of, I think it's something you just have to hear over and over again in different ways, and maybe someone describes yeah. it a different way and it clicks. So, you know, there's a couple of sayings I've heard before. You know, you, you, it's better to be on the ground wishing you're in the air than you know in the air wishing you're on the ground. And, and Correct. You, you said there before. You know, there's always another way. Yep. Sometimes you you're you're just too close. You got to try and force yourself to have a a bit more perspective and, yep. and step back. Well, there's no doubt, no doubt outside of, um, uh, in the commercial world, there are commercial pressures. Um, people just, uh, like people running some company that uses a helicopter as an airborne transport and don't really know or care about what the pilot can or can't do. And, and it, they don't have to know that because they've hired a pilot to do it. But, um, you know, they, there comes a time when the pilot says, well, yeah, really, it can't be done because of this reason, and, and a lot of times they don't take uh, too many I can't do it until they look around for some. And there's always someone who's ready to take your place. Yeah, you know, there, there's always someone in the queue waiting to take your job. So it's it's an unfortunate situation, but um, if you want to live uh, to an old bloke like me, and I've got to say that accidents, I've probably the most damage I've done to a helicopter who's taking the tire rotor off a B-model Iroquois while I was giving a guy a check ride. We are doing practice engine flares after takeoff, and uh, he wasn't doing them particularly well, but I just got him to do it right. And he took one last bite of the cyclic before he levelled, and the stinger, because it was very wet where we were doing it, it was over at Pierce, 
the stinger just sliced into the mud and the tara hit the ground. Sheared the tara out of gearbox, uh, the 90 degree gearbox in half and I saw this red and white and black stuff bouncing by. I thought I'd had a stinger strike. I thought, hmm, that looks suspiciously like my tara rotor and I'm now the other top of flying so it has to be. <laughs> in fact, there was a, the Central Flying School were visiting to check out Mackie instructors and students and uh, one of the instructors in a Mackie taxiing in was an ex-helicopter instructor and he said to his front seat pilot, he said, you see that the helicopter over there, it's going to crash. And he picked it before I did. But um, I've got to say that's probably the most damage I've done to a helicopter. And I've done my job properly and to the best of my ability for started in uh, age 21-ish and finished at age 65-ish. So, you know, I don't think I missed too many jobs and uh, I didn't dingle many aircraft because... I always had in the back of my mind that um, I know my limits, I know the aircraft's limits, I know that what the job is, and we've got to try and achieve this. But at times you've got to say, no, sorry, can't be done. And this was all all the um, flying helicopters around in the cloud in the early days, uh, legally with the Dauphin, for instance, which didn't have a big um, a big uh, IFR reserve type capability. You used to think we first started, and there's no any icing or anything like this on any of the engines or the rotor blades, stuff like this. You start to think, is this IFR flying in a helicopter dangerous or is it, is it capable to be done safely? Well, when you think about it, it is better to be IFR and monitor the weather than try and scud run underneath it. Because scud running under weather can end in tears. IFR flying... To my knowledge, I've never found a helicopter, never heard of a helicopter in Australia having a problem IFR. I could be wrong, but I do know a lot of helicopters that have crashed with fatal uh, results because of scud running, trying to get under the cloud around the mountains and wires and you name it. Ken, were you, were you involved in the hiring at all when you were a senior pilot in those different positions? Did you do any uh, interviewing and hiring? Yes, I did. Yes, I did at Orange. I was once again. I was working for the same chief pilot, and he was very good. He said, "This is a job. Go away, get it done, and do it properly." So, right up. So away we did. We had to train up a couple of crewmen from scratch. One was a, a, a highway patrol officer from Bathurst who applied to do uh, part-time crewing. Another guy was an ex-air force mechanic who also worked in Bathurst. He wanted to do a bit of part-time crewing. He was an active air force uh, mechanic who'd come down to do some. So. Because of my instructional background, I led the training on those guys and was involved in the selection process. Uh, also, for pilots, um, the first pilot uh, that we had up there, I had taken with me from the ADF helicopter school. We had another civvy. Um, we were looking for a pilot at the time, and I said to this guy, what do you reckon? He said, yep. So basically, I put the case to the chief pilot about this fellow, and he got the job and did it very well. Then he left and uh, I recruited another, well, we involved another recruiting process and ended up having a fellow that I knew from years ago from the Navy. And he was, I said to the chief pilot, once again, this guy will do the job, I know him, so I brought him in. It's, um, people wonder why, when you look at an EMS job, there's usually 1,500 hours total of 500 hours on type and instrument rating and all this sort of stuff. It's certainly it says this pilot has done this and he's qualified in this, but a lot of the times it's uh, it's uh, driven by external uh, factors. Like it might be it might be driven by the 
insurance company used by the, the company to insure the helicopters. These days it can be driven by the ambulance service. They're looking for a certain standard, of, standard a certain qualification uh, from the pilots that they want these companies to hire. So if young pilots get knocked back and, uh, you know, why can't I do the job? Well, you know, if you spend a couple of thousand hours, a bit more maybe, you'll have seen most things you can see and you can make the decision based on your experience. You may have the manipulative skills at a couple of hundred hours, but you don't have the airborne experience. You don't have, oh, I saw this situation about five years ago and I did this. Yeah. So um, that is the sort of thing. And the young blokes will think, well, I've got to start at the bottom. You know, I've got to go mustering or something. Uh, and it seems like you, you are staying at the bottom. Well, you are. You are staying at the bottom and you will build up your experience uh, and you'll progress. Turbine rating, twin rating, instrument rating, you name it, you'll build this up. And over the period of time it takes, that, say, 1,500 hours, maybe 2,000, you'll have seen a fair bit and you'll have a you'll have something in your brain to say, hey, I saw this situation two years ago and I did this. So, you know, there's no doubt that a young bloke has got the manipulative skills, particularly coming straight out of a good training school, but he hasn't got the experience to back it up. So the and that's what's necessary. To, to be able to yep, that's up. right. Well, you know, from your own, you know, your own flying, you, you just see things and you understand things and you understand how you cope with that situation. But the biggest thing, as I said, is uh, know your experience, yeah, sorry, your capabilities, the aircraft's capabilities and limitations, and stick to them. Well, Ken, that's, uh, that's some pretty good advice there to wrap up on. So, look, you've had a... I'm not sure if we actually got to the end of it, if you came back. Oh, from well, <clears throat> really, yes, we did. Um, uh, the Darwin contract finished, and I'd reached uh, mid-60s, and I thought, and once again, this is a salutary lesson for someone of my age, most of the flying, even still in the EMIS world, is single pilot. And so, you know, here I am at 65 trying to get a job uh, where I'm flying young people around uh, of, you know, in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> you know, you start to understand why they might look sideways. <laughs> and I've always kept myself pretty fit. Um, I have a, a number of small health issues which helped me make the decision. I could have got around them, but I helped them make the decision on it. But you know, you've got to understand from that point of view, a single pile helicopter. Now, I pass my test, I do my stress ECGs, but, uh, you know, it, it, there's a point in time when you've got to say, okay, it's been great fun, but it's time to move aside, let someone move around you and move on. And that's the other thing. I think, you know, if you, if you keep persisting on it, the, the quality of the jobs won't be as good. Uh, and even in airlines, you know, Qantas and that, they have compulsory trying ages because, it's quite simply that you've reached, you've had your turn, you've had a good time, and I can't, I wouldn't change my um, my uh, career at all. I, you know, right from the beginning, it's it's been uh, great fun, great experience, some uh, funny times, some pretty times, some sad times, but uh, overall, uh, particularly the medical world, it's been an extremely satisfying job, and I hope that someone out there is alive because of what myself and my crew did. A big thanks to Ken Vogt for sharing some of his experience with us over the last two episodes. When I listen to guys like Ken and indeed all the guests I have on the show, I'm not sure if I've said this before, but 
I just wish, you know, for one of those scenes from the movie The Matrix where the characters can just download a bunch of info and, and do a, a brain data upload. Like, how good would it be to launch on your, your next flight with a, a data bank of experiences like that behind that you could draw on and use to compare against anything that you came up against? Until then, though, we'll just have to rely on, on capturing and sharing stories and using them to expand our, our own repertoire. If you're enjoying these episodes and find them you know, entertaining or you're getting a you know, good professional grounding from them, then there are ways that you can get involved in supporting the show. So obviously, please do share or forward an episode on to someone else in the industry or someone that's thinking about learning to fly helicopters or to be an engineer or an air crewman. You also have the ability now to help cover some of the, the costs of producing the show through your support on Patreon. It's super easy for a dollar a show or even the cost of a, a cup of coffee. That does help bring these episodes to you more often. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash rotarywingshow or rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Coming up in the next episode, we talk with a Huey gunship pilot who flew in the Vietnam War. And there were times where someone would be in contact with an enemy. You'd go through the, where are you, throw the smoke. Um, they'd say the enemy is X metres to the west of here, so you'd start attacking. And we had limits of, I think it was 50 metres for, for rockets and 25 metres for miniguns. Yeah. And you could fly fly to those limits, but you were really well trained and 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 feel, feel fairly safe. But there were times where the enemy were actually inside, they were closer to the, our guys than than our minimum limits. So then you had to decide. You couldn't say, well, sorry, we can't can't do anything for you. You talk with the guy on the ground. And he would say, well, just keep marching it in and we'll tell you when you get too close. Or words to that effect. You'd work out some way. And there were a number of times where we had to do that and it actually saved the day. Next time you take off, think about the yaw control you'd need to aim fixed miniguns accurately on a target several hundred metres out, and if you think you could do it down to 25 metres accuracy. Thanks for joining us again on the Rotary Wing Show.